Hi there, and welcome to the All About Everest podcast, episode 19, interview with Jim Davidson. Jim is a well-known mountaineer and has decades of experience in mountaineering. He has also written the book, The Ledge, about his Mount Rainier expedition, and also The Next Everest, which is about his two summit attempts on Mount Everest. In his book, The Next Everest, he talks about when he was on Mount Everest during the 2015 avalanche at base camp and then his summit achievement in 2017. The Next Everest is one of my all-time favorite books, and I would say it's in my top three for books about Mount Everest. And I was so excited to have him on the show. So here we go. Before I get to my interview with Jim Davidson, just a quick update about Mount Everest. The climbing season is pretty much over. I think there might be one team left up there, but the weather window is quickly closing and there's supposed to be bad weather this week. Nims Day did complete a summit about two days ago without O's, and I understand that it's his second summit this year. Other than that, I don't have a lot for you. It was a really good season. Um, there were only two fatalities, blessed be their memory, and hundreds of summits because of this fabulous weather window. And I know at the beginning of the season, there were some people that were kind of worried because the weather is not typical for this time of year, and especially a weather window that lasted over two weeks. So that's pretty impressive. I hope to get some of the climbers that summited this year or who were on the mountain on the podcast in the next couple of episodes. So for this episode, I interviewed Jim Davidson and I had such a good time. I really enjoyed his perspective about climbing Mount Everest and also his whole experience because in 2015, it was his first summit attempt. And what happened was that there was an avalanche in Everest Base Camp, which that year nobody summited because of this huge disaster. But he tried again and went back in 2017 and was re able to reach the summit. His book, The Next Everest, is one of my all-time favorite books, and this month, through the 31st on Amazon, it's on sale for $2.99. It's an editor's pick, so that is a smoking deal. So if you don't have it already, it is one that you need to add to your library, and here we go for our interview. So I just want to welcome Jim Davidson to the podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. So Jim wrote the book, The Next Everest, and also The Ledge, but he um, is really known for his mountaineering in general. How long have you been mountaineering for, Jim? I've been a climber for 40 years now, so it's uh, getting up there, I guess. And what got you into mountaineering? Well, I was not much of a, a climber at all or an outdoorsy person. In fact, I wasn't much of an athlete at all uh, when I was a kid. I was lousy at team sports and couldn't run the mile in high school at all. Um, but I worked for my dad's painting company from a very young age. And he had an industrial painting company. And so I started climbing ladders and 
walking roofs by the time I was 12 years old. I could operate a man-lift crane before I could drive a car. And so I started learning how to work off the ground in a small team doing uh, an important but dangerous task of being up there. And it kind of came to a culmination when my dad got these jobs painting high-voltage electrical towers. So I started climbing oh. 100 feet, 250 feet off the ground with 230,000 volts around me. Uh, and we were working as teams of four. It was very dangerous. So I just learned how to work in a team like that. And then when I was 19, I went backpacking. And I looked up at these gorgeous mountains in New England. And I thought, if I can learn how to climb, I can use my climbing skills to go up into those gorgeous mountains. And it started clicking when I was 19. And that's what I've been doing ever since. So this, the newest book that you have, The Next Everest, is about your two climbs to Mount Everest, the 2015 disaster, and then when you climbed in 2017. But before that, you had had a life-threatening incident on Mount Rainier. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, yeah, I've been to Rainier a couple of times, and in 1992, I was there with my good friend and regular alpine climbing partner, Mike Price. We both met uh, while we were going to school in Colorado State, climbed together for six years, and in June of 92, we went off to go try Rainier. And because we were both technical climbers and been at it for a while, we tried the Liberty Ridge, which is a difficult route on the north side. So after like three and a half days of snow and steep ice and rock, we summited on June 21st, 1992, sunniest day of the year, first day of summer. But sadly on the way down, as we were descending a much easier route on the Emmons Glacier, the kind of the northeast uh, glacier, uh, uh, there was a hidden crevasse underneath a snow bridge. And even though we were tied together and I was probing with my ice axe, that snow bridge collapsed and dropped me into that crevasse. And my partner Mike did his job and slowed me down, but it was about noontime now on June 21st. And what happened was the snow was super soft. Mike dug in, but he couldn't stop me. And unfortunately, he got pulled over the lip of the crevasse and the two of us tied together went all the way to the bottom of the crevasse. And um, what did you learn from that experience that you used towards both of your summit attempts on Everest. Let's start with 2015. Yeah, you know, um, sadly what happened was I survived the accident on Mount Rainier, but my partner Mike was critically injured and passed away down inside the crevasse. So uh, eventually I struggled really hard to get up that climbing wall by myself doing solo aid climbing with ice screws and, and self belaying and a lot of tricks that I'd never had to use before. And so when I first climbed out of there, I wasn't sure I wanted to climb again, but it took years and slowly I did a little bit of you know, backpacking, a little bit of easy rock climbing, easy ice, and I got back to it. So eventually I went back to expedition climbing. And by the time I went to Everest in 2015, I could look back at this 1992 accident. It was still terrible to have lost my friend and partner, and it still traumatized me pretty good. But I had learned that, you know, whatever it is that refines you into a better version of you, that's what you should do. And for some people, it's music or marathons or meditation. For me, it's mountains. And so I realized that even though I knew the dangers of the mountains very well, by choosing to climb bigger and bigger mountains, it was making me into a better version of me, hopefully more patient, better shape, hopefully a better partner, a better friend. And, and I took some of that back down with me. So I think by the time I got around to climbing Everest in 2015, I had hopefully learned how to be a good partner and try and always do your best for the team. And that's what I tried to bring to the table on all the trips I went on. And I took those lessons with me to Everest in 2015. And one of the biggest questions that people ask those who climb Mount Everest, how did you fund your first trip in 2015? Uh, the good old fashioned way, I worked and saved. Um, I came from a family, a blue collar family. My dad was a, a painter, um, he owned the company, but he was a house painter essentially. Uh, and my mom was an accountant's assistant. And 
I was first generation university student to go to, go to university. Uh, so I just started, I started with very humble beginnings. And when I first got into climbing, I wanted to start rock climbing in Bozeman in the fall of 82. And I couldn't afford to buy the most basic rock climbing gear. So I bought every other piece of gear, every other hex uh, chalk, just so I'd have some chance of climbing. That probably added up to like 80 bucks and it was a big investment for me. So I started with pretty humble beginnings. So I just tried to save my money and I had a good career. Eventually I became a geologist and I was a consultant as a environmental geologist. So, you know, I, I made a good living, but the main point was to live below my means and save my money, not so much to buy things as to have experiences. And so that's something that I've done and my wife of 32 years have always done. So I just saved my money. I, I got a little sponsorship from my long-term boot sponsor of Loa Boots, but the vast majority of it was just uh, working and saving for the things that I thought were most important in life, which is climbing the mountains and having these experiences. And when did you first decide that you wanted to climb Mount Everest? When did you make that decision? Well, I, I had it as, a, as a, a distant, distant dream when I was a kid, 10 years old. I was reading uh, polar exploration books, and my dad said, hey, next time you go to the Concord Library in Concord, Mass., where we lived, he said, you know, the next shelf over has got mountaineering books. You should check those out, too. So I started reading mountaineering books, and I looked up Everest and my parents' encyclopedia in, you know, 1972 in our basement with black and white encyclopedia photos. So I always knew about Everest, and I dreamed about it, but I wasn't much of an athlete at all, so it seemed a pretty distant dream. And it was only after being a climber for about 15 years uh, that I began to think, you know, maybe someday I could go to Everest. But I knew there was a big gap between where I was. I climbed some 20,000 footers, but that was it. But I realized I, maybe what I should do is start steering myself towards Everest. So I kind of backwards engineered it. And I thought, well, if before I try Everest, I should try a 25 or 26,000 foot peak. So I did that in 2009. And before that, I had done a bunch more 20,000 footers. So after about 10 or 15 years of doing higher peaks, and finally concluded with uh, Choyu, the 26,900 footer in Tibet. That's when I said, you know what? This everything is possible for me. I've, I've succeeded on one 8,000 meter peak. I do okay at altitude. So it wasn't really till about 2010 or so that I really thought that I stood a chance of getting ready for Everest. So before your 2015 trip, what were some of the concerns that you had and some of the dangers that you felt were likely before you uh, made it to Everest Base Camp? Well, although, you know, by the time I got to Everest Base Camp in 2015, I'd been a climber for about 32 years, 33 years. Uh, and I lost my good friend, Mike Price, as I, we talked about in my book, The Ledge. Um, but, you know, by then I knew a lot about all the dangers because I had lost other friends and I'd been a volunteer rescue in a lot of accidents, including Mount McKinley and Long's Peak in Colorado. I'd volunteered on some high altitude rescues. So, you know, I knew about all the, the objective dangers. There's avalanches and snow bridges collapsing and serac shifting and, uh, you know, accidents and high altitude illness in a half a dozen forms, um, you know, injuries and overuse injuries. I'd seen lots of those things. So I just tried to build myself up in each of those areas to reduce the chances. But I knew there was still significant risk and I was pretty cognizant of it because, you know, I've been married to the same lady now for 32 years and I had two kids that were still, you know, in their teenage years. So I was Try to be pretty cautious. A lot of people think climbers are risk takers. I think most of us are risk managers. We spend the vast majority of our time thinking about weather and helmets and protection, but still trying to get the climb done. So I just try to reduce all those risks as much as I could. And also the other thing is to be as prepared as possible by being as fit as possible. I think by training harder than you think you need, you take that strength with you as kind of a, a reserve in case something goes wrong and the climb gets more difficult than you thought. You have a, a reserve to tap into. 
So did you ever think that there would be an earthquake or an avalanche at base camp before your 2015 trip? Absolutely not. Uh, no way. I, I'm a geologist uh, and had been for 20 years. So I understand uh, how mountains form and certainly the, the Himalayas form because the continental plates are moving and uplifting the Himalayas. That's been going on for 55 million years. And we understand that in a geologic scale or over long periods of time that there's going to be earthquakes and earth movement that actually occur while we were on Everest. That didn't cross my mind. I'd never heard anybody else talk about it either. Uh, you know, people are only on Everest about two, two and a half months in the spring. So we're not there three quarters of the year. We're only there 25% of the time. So the you know intersection of having people high on Everest, when I was at Camp One at 19,800 feet, uh, with a major earthquake, and not just any old earthquake, it was the biggest earthquake to hit Nepal in 81 years. It was 7.8 magnitude, and that's a pretty big quake with major damage. So no, I, I never heard anybody talk about earthquakes on the high mountains, uh, and I didn't see it coming either. So talk to me about what happened in in 2015, where were you when the earthquake occurred and kind of walk us through that? Sure. We had um, done our slow approach up the Kumbu Valley approaching Everest. We had done some smaller peaks to get used to the altitude of 18,000 feet and 20,000 feet on Lobache East, which is a kind of a standard climatization peak. And we've been in base camp for, you know, probably about 10 days uh, getting used to the altitude. We made some short runs partway to Camp 1. Uh, to get used to the ice fall and all the crazy technicality in there where all the ice blocks shift and, and fall down as the glacier slowly tumbles downhill. So by the time April 25th came, we were on the move. We had moved from base camp at 17,500 feet up to camp one at 19,800 feet. It was early in the season, so there were some uh, other climbers from other teams above us up at camp two at about 21,500 feet, but it's still early in the season, so nobody was on the upper third of the mountain. We got to uh, Camp One at uh, mid-morning uh, on April 25th, 2015. Took a little snooze because we've been up since midnight because you basically climbed through the ice fall in the nighttime. And at 11.56 a.m. Nepal Standard Time, we heard an avalanche start coming down one wall, which is 3,000 vertical feet. That didn't freak me and my tent mate out very much. My, my friend Bart, we, we hear him all the time. Everybody hears him almost every day. But then a second avalanche started on an opposite slope. And as a geologist, I've studied avalanches and I thought, Two avalanches at the same time on opposite slopes? That's not right. Something's wrong. And all of a sudden, the tent shot up into the air. And that's when the first waves of the avalanche of the earthquake were rippling through the Kumbu Glacier and lifting up the entire glacier. It's three miles long and a thousand feet thick and a mile wide, and the whole body of ice was going up and down like like swells on the ocean. And that's when we knew it was an earthquake. And so. After you found out that it was an earthquake, it, um, and according to your book, you were kind of in survival mode. And you had just mentioned that you're a risk manager, that that's kind of like the mountaineering mindset. So once you realized what was going on, um, you had mentioned in your book that you decided to put on your GoPro, everything else, and to chronicle this just in case you didn't make it so there was some type of record. So kind of walk me through those next steps um, and what you were thinking. Yeah, you're right. As I described in the next Everest, I did a couple things when the, when the avalanche started coming down, I yelled to Bart, get out, get out of the tent, because my avalanche training had taught me that we don't want to be in the tent when the avalanche is hit, because the tent will act like a sail or a sea anchor and drag mm -hmm. us underneath the wave of piling debris. If we're outside, we stand a decent chance of being able to try and swim on top of it. So really in that moment of crisis, 
what you're really trying to do is just even slightly increase your chance of survival and the chance of survival of the people around you. And so um, the most important thing was I put my hat on because I might get buried and stay and need to stay warm. I grabbed my avalanche transceiver and I turned it on. And it takes about five or six seconds for that transceiver to kick in as the electronics warm up. And I got to tell you, that was about the longest six seconds of my life, just staring at it going, come on, come on, fire up. Mm -hmm. So those things were very small. And if I get hit by a piece of ice the size of the Empire State Building, those two things are not going to save me. Right. But if I just get partially caught in the debris, staying warmer, being able to be found with my avalanche transceiver, those might increase my chance of survival. And that was something that I had learned. You asked earlier, what, what did I learn from surviving Mount Rainier? And what did I describe in the book, The Ledge? That's what I learned is in that moment of crisis, you have to just keep doing small things to increase your chance of survival and the people around you. And if you can do enough of those in sequence, you can actually improve your chances of quite a bit. So, uh, you know, that was a couple of things was the avalanche transceiver, getting outside the tent, I grabbed the GoPro to document it because that was probably more of a scientist thing, which is like, if we all get killed, I want someone to know what happened here and why. Maybe they can learn something from it and help future generations of climbers avoid such a mishap. So that was another thing I'd done sort of thinking far down the road. But I got to tell you, when I ran out of the tent, hearing those avalanches coming, I didn't really think we we're going to survive. I thought we we're all going to be buried the next minute or two. And when did you realize that you were going to be okay? It took yeah. about... Sorry, it took about four or five minutes. So go ahead with your question, please. Um, when did you realize that it was Everest Base Camp that got hit the worst? Yeah, I, it took about four or five minutes to realize that I and my teammates around me at Camp One were going to survive because the avalanches came down and the wind blew because the avalanches were coming right at us and the avalanches were bulldozing air out of the way. So we had wind blowing like crazy from both sides, ice debris coming out of the air, the waves of the earthquake rippling through the glacier. But one by one, each of those things settled down. I had my GoPro running, like you said. So after about three and a half minutes of runtime, plus a minute before I turned the GoPro on, after about four or five minutes, it got quiet. The wind stopped, the falling ice debris and ice dust stopped. And I realized, wow, I survived. Yelled to my friend Bart that was in another tent by then. And within you know five minutes after the quake, we realized we'd survived. Then we called down to base camp. It, that probably took another 10 minutes or so. That's when we found out that base camp had had an even worse disaster. They had been hit by a different avalanche, which I think you described in a previous podcast that came down off of Pumo Ri, and it was containing not just snow and ice and wind, but rocks, lots and lots of rocks. And those rocks acted like cannon fire, went right through the middle of base camp. So it was probably over the course of about a half an hour until we realized something bad had happened in base camp, but several hours until the base camp um, teams, the rescue teams, had figured out how bad it was. And that's when we found out that 18 people had been killed instantly, making it the deadliest day ever on Mount Everest. Was anyone killed um, at Camp 1 or Camp, camp 2, or was it just at Everest Base Camp? Uh, nobody was uh, killed or even seriously hurt at Camp 1 or 2. Uh, there was somebody who had a heart problem the next day and a few people who had altitude sickness that were evacuated by helicopter out of Camp 2, but those were sort of uh, you know side incidents, but not actually the, the impact. People were only killed in, uh, in base camp, about 18 killed that first day and a 19th person died later. There were some counts that went up as high as 22 or 24. As I described in the next Everest, I dug really deep into that, cross-correlating with lots of different lists and names and everything. And I'm pretty convinced that it was 19 people that died in base camp. Uh, there was a false report during during the, the fog of the disaster that the day after the earthquake, three other Sherpers were killed going back up, trying to recreate the route back through the ice fall. But that turned out to be a false rumor. And I, I verified that was false. So I think it was 19 killed overall 
from base camp, including someone who died in the hospital about five days later. And uh, there were also about 70 people wounded in base camp, and they got flown out of base camp a day after the quake. Yeah, I've noticed that that number, depending on where you look, it kind of fluctuates, but it usually sits about 18 or 19. Um, how long were you stuck at Camp 1? We were stuck there just about 44 hours. Um, the first day, we knew we had to sit tight. There was, we figured there was no way through the ice fall because the Kumbu ice fall is moving an average of three feet per day, and all these ice blocks collapse and twist and turn and drop on each other. Well, that's what happens on a normal day. Now, for 7.8 magnitude earthquake, we figured that our fixed lines and our ladders that the ice fall doctors had put in were probably gone, but we didn't verify that until 24 hours after the quake. Uh, one senior Sherpa and two guys went down and came back up and said, yep, the ropes and ladders are gone. We are stuck here at Camp One. And the helicopters that were available moved the wounded out of base camp that first day after the quake. And it was the second day after the quake when they still had some helicopter capacity. They said, you know what, let's try and get everybody at Camp One and Two on these choppers. And so we were stuck up there for about 44 hours, and it was uh, about uh, in basically one long day, an incredible uh, cooperation plan among all the expeditions and the pilots and uh, everybody on the ground. We managed to get everybody out of Camp 1 and Camp 2 back to the base of the mountain about two days after the quake. So after everything that happened in 2015, why did you decide to go back in 2017? What was your drive this time? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. That's something I thought about for long and hard for the entire year. At first, uh, you know, I knew that, you know, after 2015 with the quake happened, uh, us climbing the mountain was not important at all. It's just, a, you know, it's a personal goal and recreation and kind of spiritual, but it's not important in, in compared to people who lost their lives. You know, it was uh, traumatic being around the earthquake, but mostly traumatic for the people of Nepal because they had lost their friends and family and, and buildings had collapsed by the tens of thousands. So when I first got home, I spent the first couple of months just focusing on uh, speaking at fundraisers and trying to get on the media and saying, please don't forget Nepal. Let's let's raise money to rebuild Nepal. So that's what I did for a couple of months. And then in 2016, I was wondering, you know, Nepal really needs tourists and trekkers and climbers like myself to spend our money. But can they really handle us? Their infrastructure had been really wrecked in 2015. Well, by 2016, they, they showed that they were ready to take, uh, you know, have climbers and tourists come back. And they had a pretty good season on Everest and a pretty good season of tourism. So I realized it's a possibility. But then the question is, do I want to go back? I mean, I'm a geologist and I'd gotten that evidence right in my face. There's going to be more quakes. It's going to happen again, but nobody knows if it's in one day or one century. I kind of played the odds figuring that it wouldn't happen while I was on the mountain again, because it really hadn't happened in 70 years of climbing Mount Everest. It seemed unlikely that it was going to happen again while I was there. But also I'd learned through all this that, you know, taking on bigger challenges, they refine you into a better version of you. And so going back to Everest was something I've been thinking about now for 35 years. And I thought, this is something I can do. It's not easy. It's not cheap. It was a little bit of risk for sure. But I know this is how I sharpen myself into being the best version of me that I can. Uh, and I want to keep my Sherpa friends employed too. So it was a weighty decision, but I decided late in 2016 to go back. So I had to do all the training all over again. And this time I was 54 years old. So I had to get in even better shape. And so it was quite a challenge the second time, both mentally and physically. And what did your wife feel about you going back to Everest? Well, uh, fortunately, she's a very patient and tolerant person. And we've been together for married for 32 years and together now for uh, going on 40 years. Uh, a big thing was that I was a climber before I met her. So, uh, you know, it's kind of like buying a used car as is. It's got some dents in it, but you knew they were there when you bought it. So uh, <laughs> she kind of knew I was a climber before we, we started dating. 
but mostly she knows that this is really important to me. There's a, a lot of things in life I don't do. I don't hunt or fish or watch sports or gamble. I don't bowl. I don't do those, those things. But climbing is what I do. And even though it takes my attention and money away a little bit from the family, it's uh, really important to me. I find it spiritual. And seeking awe in the mountains and, and seeking the solitude and peace in the mountains is really critical to my spirituality and keeping me mentally healthy, I think, as well. So she was nervous, of course. Um, she got to see firsthand what happened in 2015 when I was trapped there. But she supported it. It wasn't a very difficult conversation. Uh, I shared that conversation in, in the book, The Next Ever, about the two of us sitting in the kitchen and having that. And it's, uh, I was pretty nervous. I was fiddling with my coffee cup and waiting for the right moment to ask her. And <laughs> she was a little bit uh, exasperated, perhaps, but she wasn't particularly surprised because she knows it's important to who I am. So she agreed readily, basically, in one conversation. And I trained hard and went back in 2017 to try again. And what was the feeling like when you reached the summit in 2017? What was going through your mind? Uh, you know, we were on the mountain a long time because we had a lot of rough weather. In most years, a, a long period of good weather will open up in mid to late May called the summit window. And it might be three days or six days or eight days long or maybe a couple of four-day windows. Well, the year we went to 2017, there were no good weather windows. There were tiny little gaps. They called them keyholes. And instead of trying to go through an open window, we were trying to squeeze through a keyhole. So as a result, we didn't even get to try for our summit until day 55 of the expedition. Oh, wow. Yeah. And I was so sick of camping at high altitude. I got in the best shape of my life, but I still lost 23 pounds on the mountain. And almost all of that was muscle, not fat. So I was pretty exasperated by the time we finally made the summit push. But we had good weather on the push, and it unfolded pretty well. It's about five days to the summit. And on those last couple hours, I was, you know, I was really nervous on the summit push night because you can't sleep at all before you go up. So by the time you make the summit push, you've been awake for almost 18 or 20 hours to start the day. I think it was 36 hours before I finally got to sleep after the summit push. I was nervous about all the things you might expect. Will my oxygen run out? Will I get altitude sick? Are we going to get wind or bad weather or frostbite? But as each of those kind of fell behind us as the night unfolded, and after about seven hours, we were within an hour of the summit, and I thought, you know, unless the weather magically goes bad or I suddenly have cerebral edema in my brain from the altitude, we're really going to make it. And I started to feel the sense of weight coming off my shoulders. And when I got to the summit, there was there was no big feeling of having conquered anything. I felt very, very small because you're on this narrow ridge and there's a drop off at a steep angle, not dead vertical, but very steep, 8,000 vertical feet back in Nepal. And on the right hand side, it's 11,000 vertical feet back in Tibet on the, on the east side of the mountain. And you're this little tiny speck surrounded by stars. So I felt very humble. I felt very fortunate to be there knowing that so many people had taught me so much and been supportive to help me get that far. So I just felt like I was the lucky guy who got to step on home plate on behalf of a lot of people who had put a lot into helping me become the person I was and help me become the climber that I was and to put me there. And why did you decide to write your book, The Next Ever? Uh, well, I decided uh, for two reasons. One was, uh, as a geologist, I, I spent a fair bit of time in base camp after we'd finished moving the wounded out and moving the bodies out and doing some cleanup around base camp. I walked around as a geologist and scribbled some notes. I thought, I'm a geologist. I should record what an amazing and tragic geologic event happened here and try and figure out how it happened. So I collected some evidence and studied maps and stuff and took photos. So I felt obligated to kind of share just for the the academic and scientific record, if you will, what happened in base camp and for the mountaineering records so people can learn from it. So that was one driving force. But also, as I look back that even, you know, the, uh, the scariness of going back in 2017, I wanted to share some lessons I learned about resilience. And uh, really, I'm not a geologist anymore. For the last 15 years, I've been a full-time speaker, 
professional speaker and I speak at business conferences and universities and things like that. And I share lessons about resilience. And that's really what climbing has mostly taught me is how to be more resilient, resilient in the face of change and challenge and uncertainty. And I was no superhero on Everest. I was no superhero when I touched the top. I was small and scared and tired and cold. And so I just wanted to share the reality of taking on big challenges like that, both the fears and what facing those fears can teach you. So that was the second aspect of putting that into the next hour is just to be honest, what's it really like to be there? I wanted the average reader to feel what it was like to be on the mountain and to know that there are scary moments, but they can help you refine yourself into a better version of you. And that's really what makes us more resilient for the next next difficulty, the next challenge, the next Everest ahead. And that's where the title came from because there's always a next Everest ahead in everybody's life. Um, do you have any other new projects planned? Any more books? Um, any more mountaineering feats, anything like that? Well, I, I'm, a, I'm still climbing now. Everest has been, you know, it's five years behind me in the rearview mirror, but I'm a climber at the core. So um, I live in Colorado, so I get to climb in the Colorado Rockies on a regular basis. I live an hour from Rocky, Rocky Mountain National Park, and I try and go on an expedition about every other year. So in 2019, I and my regular teammate uh, and expedition partner, Rodney Lay, took some younger climbers down to Peru to kind of teach them how to do the high altitude expedition thing. Uh, had hoped to go again in 2021, but you know what happened with COVID. So kind of holding off on the international expeditioning for the moment. Still climbing in Colorado, doing a lot of ski mountaineering. And uh, I've also been promoting uh, my book, The Next Ever, so I'm continuing to speak. And the books come out in uh, five international um, editions in four different languages, besides the North American one. And so I've been putting that out there, kind of help support that as they roll it out in other countries. And in fact, right now in May, for your listeners, um, it's on sale through its Amazon monthly deal. So it's only $2.99 on, on Kindle. So people can get it through the end of May cheap. So just um, just promoting the book and, and the message that it has. I'm starting to think about the next uh, climbing expedition, starting to do a little soft adventure travel to go to Alaska with my wife. And then uh, we'll think about maybe an international expedition real soon, maybe within the year. And what, in your opinion, what are the top three things that that someone needs to be successful on Mount Everest, your top three? Great question. Um, I think the first thing is a very broad space of experience, sometimes what I call a broad pyramid experience. And in that broad pyramid, you have to have things like rock climbing, ice climbing, snow climbing, climbing in the dark, climbing when you're sick, navigation, navigation with GPS and navigation when the GPS goes down. What's it like to get caught in a storm? What's it like to be stuck on a mountain for five days in a storm? What's it like to be away from home for 45 days? I think you need all of that under your, your harness before you go to a mountain like Everest so that you're prepared when things go wrong. Uh, along with that, the second thing would be a lot of self-knowledge. What are your strengths? What are your weaknesses? What's it like? What does it feel like for you when you run out of calories or you get massively dehydrated? How do you prevent that from happening? And how do you know when you're just a little tired and a little sick versus seriously tired and seriously sick that's gonna impinge your performance and cause you to be a danger to yourself and others around you. And lastly, I think you need to have a lot of respect for the mountain and respect for your teammates. And that, that again comes from a broad base of experience, many years of climbing. Um, I kind of liken it to, uh, you know, you and I may have got our driving license when we were 16, but that did not make us ready to drive in the Indianapolis 500. We need to get a lot more driving experience, even though we know how to turn the wheel and step on the gas and brake, we weren't ready to drive into the Indianapolis 500. And I don't think a few years of climbing qualifies you for Everest. You need to learn to respect the mountain, bring back your trash, uh, minimize impact on the mountain, and respect your teammates, both those on your team and around you. 
those are the things that I think make you a good teammate and that you can add to a, an Everest expedition and not be a burden on others. And I think that's critical at high altitude is to be able to support others as well as take care of yourself. And you actually mentioned all of those things in your book, The Next Everest. Um, they're really big topics. Where can we find you? Are you on social media, your website? Uh, thanks. Yeah, I, I got you know. I guess those are deep values of mine. So I guess I, I did work on the book. So thanks for noticing that, and thanks for being an astute reader. Uh, people can find me online. Uh, my webpage is speakingofadventure.com, and there's stuff in there about my books. There's some videos from Everest and information about me as a speaker because I love speaking to different universities and organizations and corporations. And on social media, I'm all on the usual channels. Uh, most of the time, it's under the name of uh, Resilience with Climber Jim. And on Twitter, I'm uh, Climber Jam, old hashtag from years ago, our old uh, Twitter handle. So you can find me out there. I'm on Facebook and uh, Twitter and LinkedIn and all those kind of things. All right. Hey, thank you so much, Jim. I really appreciate your time today. Uh, it was great being with you. I appreciate what you're doing, talking to all these different sources on everything, putting it all in one place for your listeners. So uh, thanks for having me on the show. It was great fun, and I'll be listening in the future. Besides podcasting about Mount Everest, I am also a huge outdoor enthusiast and blogger. And one of the things that I'm always looking for is new and affordable outdoor gear for all of my many adventures, including hiking, camping, backpacking, fishing, snow sports, and almost anything else that you can think of. And one of the best ways that I have found to get affordable outdoor gear and discover new brands is through the nomadic subscription box. It's a monthly subscription box that comes to your door. It starts at $29.99 for the monthly box and $149.99 for the quarterly box. And it has between three to five items for the monthly box and six items for the quarterly box. I have discovered some of the most amazing brands and gear items because of the nomadic box and I've also saved a ton of money it's one of it's kind of my guilty pleasure subscribing every month but just as I was looking at my gear for my last outdoor adventure I realized that most of the stuff in there including a lot of my kitchenware and my smaller items like my hat and my socks, that all of it is from the Nomadic box. So they have offered us a really cool deal if you use the code EVEREST on their website, which is thenomadic.com, and that's nomadic, N-O-M-A-D-I-K, thenomadic.com, you can get 10% off. I really encourage you to check out this deal, even if you try a one-time box or you even get one of their previous boxes, which they also sell as well. Take advantage of it and try something new today. I'll have the link and the code also in the comments. So that's it for this week's episode. Thanks again, Jim, for joining us for the podcast. I really appreciate it. It was just a really good time and I really enjoyed our conversation. As usual, don't forget to subscribe, follow, share, rate, 
It helps keep this podcast going. Keep your fingers crossed that next week I get the person on for the interview that I want. And I'm really hoping that this one will happen because it is someone that I really admire. I enjoy their story and I love their community that they've created. So that's it for today. See you next week.